Bryn-Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome one and all to another uh, special edition. It's actually a, a multi-episode of, of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, New Retina Radio, and the Mod Pod. Um, welcome back everyone. And uh, today Blake and I are gonna be talking about something that I didn't really think we would ever get to, but I'm so glad that we have. Uh, we're gonna be talking about mitigation strategies and how we can actually clean the air and potentially make our office or home or work environments safer for ourselves, our staff, and our patients. I think one of the most um, confusing and I guess moving target areas of this whole conversation has been, how does COVID-19 spread? Um, at first, we were told by the World Health Organization and others um, that we didn't need to wear masks and only healthcare workers needed to wear masks. And then the question was, if healthcare workers need to wear masks, it must mean that masks are important. And all of a sudden now everyone needs to wear a mask. And there's just really been a, a, an evolving conversation on how is COVID-19 spread. And so uh, today we're going to be talking to a couple special guests. Blake, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guests? Yeah, for sure, Gary. And um, I'm happy to, to be here. I'm actually uh, broadcasting live from Williamson Eye. You can see I'm in my, actually one of my clinic exam rooms. So that means that things are moving along and we're starting to get back to work. Um, and as we get back to work, we really got to be thinking about how can we make our clinics as safe as possible. Um, and one of the things that everyone is talking about is HVAC solutions. What do I need to do in order to keep my office and surgery center safe? And there's a lot of opinions and usually those opinions we get are given by salespeople. So I said, you know, can we track down some authorities on this uh, to educate the ophthalmic and optometric community about what we need to be doing to keep everyone safe. So very, very honored uh, to have Professor and, and Dr. Bill Bonfleth from Penn State, and also uh, Tracy Hannigan as well. Um, and they are both members of the ASHRAE Society. Uh, Bill actually chairs the society, the task force on COVID, and Tracy is in charge of the, the healthcare um, uh, and clinical aspect of the COVID task force. So. Um, thank you both so much for coming on. We really appreciate you, you, uh, you being here with us. Um, I thought that maybe we could start, um, you know, first with uh, you, Tracy, uh, and then you, Bill. Just tell us a little bit about your, your background, uh, you know, what your training is, and, and maybe what ASHRAE is and what the, what the ASHRAE COVID task force is all about. Sure. So thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, so I work for a company called Kaufman Engineers in Spokane, Washington, and I'm a mechanical engineer. I have a master's degree in mechanical engineering, and my specialty is design of mechanical systems for buildings. So I work at a consulting firm, and I've been there for uh, 24 years this month. And ASHRAE has always been a part of my career. ASHRAE is a global organization with over 55,000 members specializing in the arts of heating, refrigerating, and air conditioning, refrigeration. And um, so we put together this epidemic task force when the pandemic broke out. And I'll let Bill talk a little bit more detail about that. Um, so 
I've been chairing a technical committee for ASHRAE on healthcare facilities, one of many technical committees that they have. We have a subcommittee on infectious diseases within that that I chaired for a number of years and uh, up until about a year and a half ago. So I was chairing that, that technical committee and then this epidemic task force came up and Bill asked if I would serve on that. And we have 14 people working on that plus three staff members. And then, um, so I'm one of those 14 and we have a group specifically dedicated toward healthcare facilities. And then we have subgroups branching off of that, looking at different areas of need and providing guidance. Um, my regular day job, I design a lot of facilities. I design hospitals, um, pharmaceutical manufacturing facilities. I do some work with schools and universities and office buildings and um, a lot of laboratory work as well. I've done a lot of biological safety labs, BSL-2, BSL-3 type facilities. So my background is a lot in that air handling and ventilation, filtration, and also the plumbing and piping systems to support those. Wonderful. You, Bill? Uh, sure. I'm a mechanical engineer by training, PhD from the University of Illinois, and uh, I've been a professor of architectural engineering at Penn State for 26 years. Now, before that, I spent uh, five years full-time as a consulting engineer doing various kinds of mechanical design, and I was a facilities uh, engineering researcher for the Corps of Engineers for about five years before that. Um, I've been involved in ASHRAE since the beginning of my career, since the 1980s, and I went through all sorts of, of different positions there. I was, was eventually president of the society in 2013, 2014. Um, to, to add to what Tracy already said about ASHRAE, uh, ASHRAE produces a lot of, uh, of products. We write a lot of the standards that are used in the, the design and uh, of buildings and the testing of of equipment that goes into buildings. We have a, a big publications operation that produces lots of guidance, including the handbooks that a lot of designers rely on. And we do a research program. We have a more than a $5 million a year research program, which is uh, fairly unique amongst technical societies. So we're really all encompassing with respect to our field. And as, as Tracy mentioned, we're international. About 80% of our membership is in the, uh, the US and uh, the rest of it is overseas. So uh, there it was uh, to be expected that ASHRAE was going to be asked to put together some kind of a group to respond to the HVAC related aspects of the pandemic. And so around the beginning of March, I was asked to, uh, to chair that committee, partly because I'd been a president, but also one of my main research areas is indoor air quality and ultraviolet uh, disinfection. So I put that group together, got a bunch of really great people I know I could rely on, like uh, Tracy, to lead the, the various teams. And everyone got together, uh, got to work put, uh, preparing the guidance that we've been putting out for the last five, six, seven weeks now. Wonderful. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Gary, it's funny because, you know, Bill, Bill was probably like, who is this annoying ophthalmologist that keeps asking me questions over email? And finally, I wore him down and convinced him uh, to come on and talk to us. And uh, Bill, Bill had told me, gosh, you know, I'm getting hundreds of emails every day. I'm sure Tracy is inundated as well. So just on behalf of the entire, you know, ophthalmic and optometric community, thank you both so, so much for giving us your time to giving us some guidance. And I think we'll get into in just a little bit about the, the meat of, uh, of the topic, which 
our listeners want to know, hey, what do I need to buy and invest in and my facility? But before that, Gary, you were talking about them being on the vanguard with transmission and, and aerosol and how it's spread. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. You know, when I think of HVAC, I think about why is OR1 66 degrees and OR2 is 69 degrees and they're both set at 67. You know, like that's about as far as I had thought about my HVAC system prior to COVID-19, right? And, and that kind of drove me crazy, I'll be honest. Um, but now we've got a lot more, you know, important issues than why is there a two degree difference between my, my two ORs. Um, yeah, I, I do think it's very interesting that ASHRAE, which to me, it kind of sounds like ASHRAE is the ASCRS of uh, HVAC. These are academic people, very serious, very, um, you know, data driven. And it's, it's very interesting that ASHRAE has actually gone out and said, maybe not beyond, um, you know, there, there's, there's, there's room for debate on this potentially, but the thought is that COVID-19 is probably spread by aerosol. And you've actually gone out and said that, you know, assuming that it is, there are some really serious things that everyone who is trying to get back to a new normal, trying to get back to business needs to be considering. And, and this is no small undertaking. So um, Tracy, we had talked a little bit before we, we started. So maybe I'll just um, ask you to give us a little bit of an overview. Um, let's, let's just for a moment um, say that we all believe, and I certainly do believe that there is a significant risk of aerosol transmission of COVID-19. And if that's the case, talk to us about what does an HVAC system need to be doing to mitigate um, the spread of this disease? And what are some factors that we should be considering as we um, you know, talk about upgrading our systems or, or, or changing our systems? Sure. Uh, so there's, there's definitely that consideration if, if COVID-19 is, is an airborne spread disease, we still know that there's a lot of droplet transmission that's occurring. And so it's, it's quite likely a mixture of the two. And ASHRAE has put together a, a webpage with some great resources that we can share that link for you on that. But when you're thinking about the spaces that you're in, that you're living in and that you're working in, some things come to mind. One of them is the whole ventilation rate that you have in the facility um, or in that space. So how much outside air are you providing? And we measure that in different ways. We talk about how many cubic feet per minute of air or how many CFM of air we're putting into a space. And we talk about how many air changes per hour go on in a space of air. And you can have air handling systems that put in air and some of that air gets recirculated through the air handling unit back through filters through heating or cooling coils and and blown through air uh, by the fans through the ductwork. Um, some of that air can be just recirculated some of it is fresh air that gets added and then is exhausted say in a in a house you have some fresh air that comes in through your central furnace unit and um, then some of that gets exhausted out like through a bathroom or a whole house exhaust fan. So if you don't have ventilation, you're just looking at like an operable window and then it's cold or something, you close that up, you get a lot of stagnation in the space and that creates a buildup of contaminants. So you wanna have fresh air coming into spaces for odor control, for buildup of CO2, and then for clearing out contaminants like a SARS-CoV. So 
So it matters how many air changes per hour you have in that space and how much of that is fresh air and exhausted and how much is recirculated. For the recirculated air and then also the fresh air that you come bring in, we filter that air and the level of filtration matters. Um, the SARS-CoV virus itself is very, very small, but when you have somebody that's infected and they're coughing or they're sneezing or they're talking, most of those virus pieces are expelled in a droplet form. And so they're not just small, like just themselves, they're hooked on to mucus, moisture, whatever in that droplet. And so they're a lot larger that way than just alone. And so they can be caught by filters and we use a rating system for filters to help us know like a, it's called a MERV rating. So a MERV seven or MERV eight filters just a small little like two inch filter, pretty simple, um, catches about 30% of the um, contaminants. And then you have like a MERV 13 or 14 filter. MERV 14 is the minimum standard for final filtration in most healthcare facilities. And then you have HEPA filtration, which can catch particulates even smaller. So we think about what is that filtration rate in the space in addition to the air changes. And then one other element that's important to consider that a lot of people can overlook and not think so much about is what is the airflow pattern in the space? So if I'm contaminated, I'm infectious, and you're not, um, you would want airflow in the space to be traveling from you over to me so that, um, and then maybe exhausted out behind me so that the airflow pattern in the room doesn't take aerosolized droplets that, um, that I'm expelling and move them over into your zone. Um, sometimes we don't know though in a facility who's really sick and who's not. Um, are you trying to pr protect the clinician, the healthcare worker from the patient or is it the other way around? So you have to give some thought to that and um, what else you can do with things like good hand hygiene and masks, other, other forms of PPE. But when we think about HVAC systems, we're thinking a lot about where is that airflow moving is it from clean to less clean, which is what you really want to do? And how is, that, how is that air being treated? Is it being filtered? Is it being properly humidified? We know that um, really dry air, well, everybody knows a lot of moisture can create condensation and mold, so that's not good. We also know that really dry air can be difficult on the immune response in a person. Um, it also means that the sneezes and droplets from, from coughs and stuff can dry out faster, desiccate quicker, and then tend to remain airborne longer. So if you have somebody that sneezes and the room's more humidified, you could have um, more settling out of those droplets than if the air is really dry in the room. So we look at how that, that air is conditioned as well. Yeah, it's interesting that she brings up the MERV ratings because I started to look at that because that's all you know, esoteric to us, to we ophthalmologists. But once you start looking at it, um, when I was reading the ASHRAE uh, comments um, and recommendations, uh, it sounded like a, a HEPA filter was the way to go. So I said, oh, I'll just slap a HEPA filter uh, in my clinic. And I quickly realized you can't just do that. You could have a pressure drop that can blow your system. So, Bill, I mean, talk about, you know, what is, is the answer in terms of filtering uh, just to simply have a, a, a reliable HVAC company come to evaluate the highest rated filter you can get and go with that. And, and then secondly, 
and, and related to Tracy's comments about uh, airflow, what about just opening the door? If you're, if you're in a, if you're in a place where the, you, know, you can do that, it's not too hot or too cold, does simply opening the door in the waiting room uh, uh, help in terms of flow? You mean to the outdoors? Yeah, to, yeah, to the outdoors, or is that a bad uh, there, idea? Well, there, there were, were several questions there, and I, a couple of comments I wanted to make. One, one sure, thing sure. that people should understand about the MERV rating system is that it's a particle size based rating for filters. So the lower the number gets, the worse the filter is at smaller particles. And, and up to MERV 12 or 13, there isn't even a rating given for particles smaller than one micron. MERV 14 uh, has a, a rating actually in that size range. So you're, you're not just getting more material removed, but actually the removal is getting shifted to smaller particles that are, are the, the healthcare ones. I want to say also, Tracy comes from a different world than I do because the healthcare world talks about air changes per hour instead of CFM per person. And they also pay a lot much more attention to where air goes in the space. So this clean to less clean thing is, is just barely starting to penetrate into commercial standards. And I imagine some of your offices might be in strip malls or, or buildings like, like that. And, and they may not have been designed to a healthcare standard. The, the ventilation standards for, for commercial buildings are completely different than, than 170 that's used for, for healthcare because that's the only one that actually deals with the sepsis as a criterion. Now, uh, where were we going? So what, what filters should you use? Um, you know, we, we don't really know accurately what the airborne risk is or the aerosol risk from uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, a HEPA filter is certainly is going to get as much PM out of the air as you're likely to get, but a filter that gets 60% on a single pass is making a, a big dent in the amount of PM that's in the air. And certainly most systems that are in typical offices that you have, I imagine, couldn't accommodate a, a HEPA filter easily as a central filter, uh, but maybe they could do a 13 or 14. Uh, I think it's, it's always a good idea to ask a professional to look at your system if you're going to do an upgrade that may affect its operation, because in, in a lot of cases, you would expect some increase in pressure drop from putting in a higher efficiency filter. Um, you have to look at, is that going to reduce the airflow so much that my my spaces will not be comfortable, or is it going to uh, actually create so much pressure drop that it, it creates problems for the way my system performs, depending on what kind of cooling equipment you have. So I think that's a good place to start. And if the recommendation from ASHRAE is that you should look at putting in a 13 or 14 if you can do it. That will make, probably make a big difference if you don't already have those filters there, and uh, you would do well to, to ask whether that would be helpful. Just opening a, a door uh, may or may not help. Uh, you, if you open it and you have negative pressure in that space, it may draw more in, but uh, it might not. Maybe air will blow out. You don't really know what's gonna happen when you just start opening uh, windows and doors in, in a space. We've uh, recommended using windows for ventilation in some cases, but usually that recommendation is, well, if you can't increase your ventilation rate or if you don't have adequate ventilation, then that's the best you can do. But in, in many buildings, opening windows can result in airflow patterns you don't really want to have, like having air from a less clean space going into a clean space to go back to the, the healthcare model. So uh, it's certainly something you could do, but uh, I'd feel better about putting a, 
an exhaust fan in a window and making the air go in the direction I wanted it to go than opening the door and hope it went in the, the right direction. We've got a question from Dr. Chris George. We, just for everyone who is on, on the Zoom call live here, if you do have a question, go ahead and type it in. We're happy to uh, sort of do this live. Um, Chris asks, how does HEPA relate to the MERV rating? Um, it sounds like HEPA is beyond a MERV 14, uh, if I'm understanding that right. Or, right, can you comment on that, Bill? It's a different test. It's a different okay. test. The MERV rating system uh, for filters that are actually rated, I think, goes up to 16. They may have defined a, an 18, but they're all sub-HEPA in terms of their performance. But they're rated on the minimum efficiency in three different particle size ranges. MERV stands for minimum efficiency reporting value. So there are criteria for each of those, those uh, ranges, and you have to meet all of them to get that number on your filter. HEPA is rated with a, a um, what we would call, throw out an aerosol science word here, a monodispersed aerosol. So it's tested with 0.3 micron particles, and a HEPA filter has to be 99.97% efficient using those particles. It used to be called a DOP test, if they're still using that dioctyl phthalate produces pretty consistent 0.3 micron particles. So you're, you're rating it at that point. The efficiency is different at different particle sizes, but actually it tends to be higher. The, the, the 0.3 rating point is, is about as bad as a HEPA filter is supposed to get. So they're, they're not rated the same way, but the thing to keep in mind is that a HEPA is far more efficient than the typical MERV rated filter you'll find in a, uh, a building. So a HEPA is a, is, a, is a driver and a MERV is a, is a seven iron basically in golfing terms. <laughs> that might be a good analogy, yeah. yeah. So, so Tracy, um, let me ask you this question. So I'm gonna give you a scenario, okay? So you're not, uh, in this scenario, you're not designing a beautiful hospital from, from ground up. You're asked to, to retrofit an ophthalmology clinic, okay? Let's call it a, you know, a 3,000 or 5,000 square foot ophthalmology clinic uh, with multiple small exam, exam rooms like the one I'm in now. No ORs, just, just, just a clinic, okay? Um, and they have like a residential unit, uh, a couple residential, re residential style HVAC units. You can upgrade the, the, the filter as much as you can, um, but you might not even be able to get all the way to a MERV 14. My question would be, what could you combine with that upgraded filter to try to get, to try to make, you know, give us some peace of mind that we're, that we're, that we're doing something that's, that, that's, you know, synergistic in terms of mitigation, whether that be UVC, or PCO or, or these technologies, people are wanting to know, hey, I can't put a HEPA in my clinic. So what, what can I combine it with? Sure. So um, aside from the basic things of like good screen of staff and patients and hygiene, hand hygiene and, and using PPE, wearing masks, that sort of thing, just focusing on the HVAC side, a um, couple things you can do on most air handling units, there's a little bit of wiggle room as far as how much outside air you can bring into that unit. Um, most units have, I'll say, 10 to 20% of the total air volume is fresh air being brought in and the rest is recirculated. That can vary, but you can determine how much that is in your system. And in the wintertime, when we want to cool buildings, because usually we still need cooling on the inside of a lot of buildings, even, even when it's cold outside, especially in the interior, those air handling units run in what's called economizer mode. And that means that it'll, the system will 
bring in more outside air than the minimum amount and use that as free cooling. So rather than running a compressor and a refrigeration circuit to, to cool that air, the system just modulates dampers and, and opens outside air damper up more and brings in more fresh air and, and exhausts that out. And you can go all the way into what we call 100% economizer mode, where it's 100% outside air and nothing's recirculated. And a lot of air handling units have economizer feature it's required by energy code in many states. So especially in mild climates or in the shoulder seasons, the spring and the fall, you can ask your system to run in economizer mode and maybe you sacrifice a little bit of temperature. Say maybe it starts to get warm and you like your office to be 73, but maybe you let it go to 75 or 76 and you can run more hours of the day in economizer mode, which means you're increasing the amount of fresh air you bring into the space and having more of a once through airflow. And um, the more capacity your system has and the more mild your temperature swing from winter to summer, and also keeping humidification in mind, the more hours you could run in that economizer. So you could have somebody look at your HVAC system and adjust the controls for that to provide more economizer operation for more hours of the day. You can adjust those temperature set points and, that you have in your space and relax those a little bit, and that'll allow you to have more fresh air. You can also look at the room air distribution and think about, okay, where's the air going in, in this space? It's coming in in the ceiling a lot of times in a diffuser, and that air usually comes out from the ceiling and goes across the ceiling and comes down the walls and then gets induces more air into a pattern within the space. That's pretty common, but some areas just have a simple sidewall grill that's just blowing out. So you can look at your facility in each of the rooms and say, how's the air moving? Um, you can take a little piece of incense. Um, sometimes, literally, I just pull a chunk of my hair out and hold it up and see which way, which way is the air moving. And think about then, okay, how are, how are people positioned in the space? Where is my chair? Where will the patient be? Where will a clinician be or an assistant or something? And you may decide that it would be helpful to either rearrange some of the air distribution in your space or rearrange some of the furniture and how your space is laid out. Um, ceilings in office spaces that are a lay-in ceiling with those um, acoustical tiles usually have a diffuser that has some flexible duct up above the ceiling and you can move that to a different area some of the diffusers have little grills and you can adjust the direction of those grills and change the way that the airflow is blowing. Um, when people aren't really happy in spaces, I've gone in and seen cardboard taped up around diffusers to make a curve and redirect the airflow. You know, people do, do all kinds of things to make themselves comfortable. So you can look at that air distribution and try to modify that, or you can change some of the space layout. Um, that That's, uh, important to do and, and consider. The other thing that you can look at is doing something supple supplemental in a space. So there are recirculating units that you can put in a room that has HEPA filters, HEPA filters in them. Um, some of these units can be ducted to the outside. So if you have the ability to bring in fresh air from a location or condition that fresh air even, um, then you could draw that air in the room out and blow it out through an exhaust fan. You can HEPA filter that 
exhaust if you want, but um, some people just run those right within the room. So they just continually recirculate that room air and filter it. And that's gonna lower the concentration of any contaminant that's in the space. Um, it's, it matters where that unit gets placed and um, how much airflow you can get through that. You no, know, a really small unit in a really big room isn't gonna make as much difference. Certainly placing it closer to a contaminant source is going to help. There aren't really good guidelines right now for how big of a unit you need to have for a certain space. That's something we're looking at trying to provide a little bit better guidance for, but certainly doing something supplemental like that in key areas could make a difference. Um, things like your waiting areas, spacing people out, lots of plexiglass being used to try to deflect air away from certain individuals, but then putting in an exhaust fan to try and clear out the exhaust. But the thing is, whenever you exhaust the air, you've got to figure out, well, where is that air really coming from? And do you have a system where you could provide makeup air for that exhaust? Um, really getting an HVAC engineer involved to look at your specific situation is going to be a big help. Um, lastly, you could look at UV light. And I'm going to let Bill talk about that a little bit more because he's got a ton of experience in what kinds of spaces and situations UV is effective and where it's not. Yeah, Bill. So, you know, it sounds like, you know, Tracy is, 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 is talking about sort of hot rotting our airflow dynamics um, in a very meticulous way. Um, maybe, you know, you've, you've been publishing on UV for 20 years. So maybe talk about how someone could perhaps do uh, add UV. And, and if they do add UV, um, where do they add it? Do they add it in the HVAC? Do they put it on the wall? Do they get a robot? Do they get a portable unit? Talk about that if you could. Yeah, I'm really, yeah. I'm really interested in hearing about the robot, so. Sure, sure. Uh, so UV and specifically the use of, of uh, 254 nanometer UVC that's produced by mercury vapor lamps, which is the same technology as a fluorescent lamp, has been around for nearly 100 years. It was, was used in schools in Philadelphia uh, with great effect during a measles epidemic in, in the 1930s in a study that was done by Harvard School of public health. So um, UVC is harmful to, to humans. It causes, uh, I'm pronouncing it right, erythema, skin irritation, kind of a sunburn, but it's more superficial than a UVB sunburn. It doesn't uh, penetrate deeply. Also causes, and you'll want to know about this, photokeratitis uh, can cause eye irritation. Those are transient symptoms that uh, normally will dissipate in 48 hours. But the bottom line is, that it, with that wavelength, you need to keep it away from people. So the way it's, it's applied is uh, for an occupied space, you can put it in an air handling unit. So if you're recirculating air, you could put it in, in your air handling unit and you could size that system to do really almost any level of disinfection you want for a target pathogen whose susceptibility is known. Uh, typically, I think manufacturers who put in general purpose systems target about 85% single pass. Uh, for their design microbe, um, which is better than a MERV-14 filter. Uh, and, and if you put, say, a, a 0.9 uh, single pass inactivation system together with a MERV filter with a, a most penetrating particle size of, uh, or a efficiency of about 60%, you'd get about 95% uh, removal by putting those two together. So it's actually a good adjunct to a filter that's not so efficient. So you can put it there and size it appropriately in the space. 
if you have a high enough ceiling, you can put it above the occupied zone. So another very well studied and, and widely applied approach is called an upper room system. You probably need an eight or nine foot ceiling to do this so that people won't run much risk of, of sticking their head or their hand or something into it and there won't be a lot of reflection down into the occupied zone. Uh, those systems have been used for tuberculosis control for years. CDC since 2005 has actually mentioned the use of, of UV for tuberculosis control in its guidelines and they've published a document on how to design upper room systems. So those are, are used in a lot of healthcare applications. They create a, a disinfection zone and then the air currents that Tracy was talking about, the ones that are, are created by the air conditioning system and also the plumes that come off of people, which move more air than you would think, carry contaminants upward into that zone. And you can describe the performance of those systems in the same terms as ventilation. We could say, what would the, the amount of outside air I'd have to bring in be that would create the same amount of reduction in viable uh, infectious aerosol in the space? And in some cases that's been calculated to be somewhere between 10 and 100 air changes. So without having to pay to condition all of that air, you can get quite effective uh, disinfection in the space. So that's the second kind, the upper room system. Uh, another way of doing it, there are some portable units, but a portable HEPA filter, a portable UV device, I think basically the same impact and the HEPAs are, are better understood, more readily available. Uh, the third thing is you can disinfect spaces when no one's in them. So that doesn't do anything about the immediate uh, air uh, inhalation risk. But if you're worried about fomite transfer, about contamination of surfaces, that's uh, something that's done in healthcare environments a lot. And in some cases, uh, the, the UV fixtures are put on the ceiling in the room to irradiate a, a space when it's not occupied. But maybe it's more economical to use these robots. So a robot is basically a uh, a stand that you put a lot of, of UV lamps on, mounted vertically typically, so vertical tubes all around, and you can put it in a space and turn it on, and typically in about uh, 20 minutes, you'll get pretty good disinfection, if not sterilization, of uh, what they're looking for there, of course, is the HAI pathogens in the space. Uh, those have been improved lately uh, using the, if I can use a trade name, kind of the Roomba approach. They, they're now actually motorized and can move around the space because one of the problems and the, the concerns that always comes up, well, what about shadows? There is some reflection of UV that will even get places that are not in direct view, but by moving around the, the space kind of randomly, you can get uh, pretty good coverage. So uh, those are, are, have been used for quite a while now. So those are the, the three uh, main methods plus the, uh, the portable. Yeah, Bill, I've been using, I've got this thing that is a UV cleaner for my phone. So whenever, and I've had this for a while, I've been a germ freak for before it was cool. Um, so, you know, I've, I've kind of been familiar with that. What is the proximity? I assume, I assume the proximity has, is limited by the wattage or the power of the UVC. So yeah. how close does the UV bulb have to be to a surface to be able to sort of have a disinfecting um, impact? Well, it depends on the, the intensity of the source, of course, and to some extent, if it's a reflective enclosure, the light works in a very interesting way, as you know. If you put a lamp in a, a mirrored box, you get a pretty good uh, distribution of the, the, the fluence, the, the radiant intensity. Uh, you can do it at quite a distance. These, these upper room systems, they're putting the fixtures on the wall and 
And it's actually best to orient them to the long dimension of a room so that uh, you get the largest volume covered by a single fixture. Uh, you can disinfect in, in almost whatever time you, you uh, need. There, there's a dose relationship, the, the intensity of the radiation multiplied by the time of exposure. So there are devices that have a, a single LED in them for say uh, disinfecting a stethoscope head where it, it goes right into it. Um, and, and in a, a few minutes, it'll be disinfected. Um, so at distances, there's no particular distance, but the closer you get, there's an inverse square law for direct uh, exposure. And so the, the fluence, the radiant intensity goes up as, as you get closer. So if we had a disco ball um, and a really strong UV light source and the disco ball was spinning, you could potentially get most of the room clean. Yes, I'm not gonna steal your IP idea there. But, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's sort of the idea of the, the robot is to, to distribute it all over the place in that right. case, a lot of lamps. Yeah. Well, we have a couple questions that are rolling in here. Before we get to them, I do wanna just take a second to thank our sponsors. Uh, we can't have, uh, uh, discussions like this without them. So we really appreciate um, the support from Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, Santin, Kalo Pharmaceuticals, Diametrix, Avelina Labs, and Dompey. Um, and it looks like we have a couple more questions about UV here from Uday and Ken. Uh, for everyone listening live, feel free to uh, keep dropping questions uh, to Bill and Tracy, and we'll try to get to them. So Uday's asking about, is there a, a certain length of time that COVID has to be exposed to UV in order to be effective. And if it's in an HVAC system, might it not be exposed to the UV for enough time to be affected? And then Ken is asking, what's better, UV lights in the ceiling shining down or a robot UV? Uh, oh, well, again, there's uh, an exponential dose response relationship for UV. It's like any other disinfectant. Uh, it's, it's exponentially re related to the, the, the strength of the, the radiation, the time of exposure, and a microbial susceptibility constant. So there's a rate constant. Um, so you can compensate for lack of exposure time by increasing the intensity. Uh, if I put a system in an air handling unit and I just want to use it to keep slime off of the cooling coil when it's wet in the summer, I can put 50 microwatts per square centimeter of, of UVC on that and because it's exposing it continuously, that will do the job. But to uh, disinfect uh, air going through the same unit, if I wanna knock down the, the viable uh, microbial content by 80 or 90%, instead of 50 microwatts per square centimeter, I might be trying to produce hundreds or maybe even a few thousand microwatts per square centimeter. So it's, it's just a matter of the number of lamps. I've, I've seen a, a system that was installed in an Air Force base in Texas that was designed for basically a HEPA filter performance. They designed it for 99.98% inactivation on single pass of, of whatever their design pathogen was. And the airflow path that was a line of sight to, to those lamps was, didn't look to be more than about three or four feet long, but there were a lot of lamps there. So. Uh, a, a manufacturer, they, they have uh, software generally, the, the, the good ones that they can use to estimate what the dose is for a particular configuration of, of lamps in an, air, in an air handling unit. And if you pull out the, the CDC guidelines, they have some uh, pretty easy to follow guidelines for uh, how much uh, upper room fixture 
input power you need to get the kind of dose level that they want in that disinfection zone. They're typically targeting 30 to 50 microwatts per square centimeter in this maybe one to two foot thick uh, layer that where the, the kill takes place. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds to me like UV is sort of like a way to almost get um, a, another boost on your, on your filtration without putting additional pressure on the air handler because it's, you're, you're not forcing air through a filter. Is that, am I thinking about that correctly? Negligible pressure drop and pretty small uh, uh, power draw too. Uh, less than you might have, well, certainly less if, you've been, if you upgraded to a HEPA filter. If you went from a typical filter in an air handling unit in a commercial building up to a HEPA, uh, you would have a huge increase in, in fan power uh, and, and fan energy use after you'd probably replaced your fan because the one you had wouldn't work. You right. can put UV into an existing system um, and, and all you need to do is install it and hook up the power and take the safety precautions that are required there and, and it, it runs fine, no other change is necessary. So just curious, what, and I, and I know this is an unfair question with a lot of variability, but if let's say 3,000 square foot, 5,000 square foot office, what kind of price would be required typically for a good UV system to that sort of like a bread and butter system that you're talking about that would really do enough that would make a difference. Yes. Now keep in mind, you're asking a professor for a cost estimate. Of course. Uh, it's, it's been a while since I actually had to make cost estimates that uh, might come back to haunt me. That's, I, I, why, that's why we have Tracy. That's, that's right. Exactly. Maybe Tracy knows. So, uh, I was, it's been a while since I did that calculation. This was probably seven or eight years ago. I came up with something like two and a half dollars a square foot using the, the rules of thumb for an upper room system. And I, I looked at a typical uh, induct system that was uh, uh, installed again by kind of a manufacturer's rule of thumb. They wouldn't have used the rule of thumb, but they said, well, it's about this much power for that size of system. And I think I came up with something that was, was maybe around 20 cents a square foot. Um, because you've got a certain amount of airflow going through the air handling unit and maybe about one CFM per square foot of, of airflow. So you could kind of calculate a square foot cost. Now, uh, I didn't include things like uh, safety precautions in the air handling unit that you'd have to take care of because you want to have interlocks. So you open the doors, the lights aren't on, a few other things. So maybe I'm off by a factor of two, but you know, you're talking about a few dollars a square foot for upper room and maybe less than a dollar a square foot for uh, an induct system. The robots are pretty pricey. Uh, you know, tens, tens of thousands of dollars in some cases. Does that sound right, Tracy? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with those numbers. Good job, Bill. Close to the, oh, thank you. So, so Tracy, there's some, there's some more questions here. Um, Bill Willis has a question. Is plasma similar to UV in treating air and filtering systems? You know, that I should really let Bill answer that. He's got okay. some good experience with the plasma as well. Well, you know, this is getting into the area of, of air cleaners that uh, maybe don't have, have quite the, uh, the record uh, behind them, just in terms of experience that UV has. As I said, we've been studying UV since actually the late uh, 19th century and have, have tons and tons of experience in academic studies. Plasma and uh, bipolar ionization, some of these other technologies are, are really interesting, um, but we're still developing, I think, the, uh, the level of confidence with them that uh, we have in some of the other technologies. So 
uh, they, they tend to work by putting ions into the air and uh, either making particles agglomerate so that things uh, will, will deposit out or in some cases possibly even oxidizing and, and disinfecting them. Uh, and some have said they've gotten very good results with those. Uh, other reports have been kind of mixed. Uh, it, it's, it's really a different technology. Uh, it it uh, is, is supposed to have the same kind of effect, but uh, it's an entirely different mechanism. The, what UV does is break in, in, in DNA, the adenine uh, thymine bonds and, and thymine dimers are formed and you do enough of that damage to a, a DNA molecule and the microorganism can't reproduce. In RNA, it's a different base pair, but the same effect. Yeah, it's funny, Gary, you know, we're, we're asking him about, you know, separately about bipolar ionization and advanced uh, photocatalytic oxidation with other catalysts that, that are not titanium dioxide. You know, he's talking about, you know, it may work, but we need longer term studies to show safety and efficacy. I thought about femtosecond lasers for cataract surgery. That was my first thought. I was yeah. like, basically, we have all this data about this thing, but we have this new femtosecond laser for cataract. It's kind of the same thing. Um, and, 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 you know, it's just we need more time and more, frankly, peer-reviewed studies that show whether this stuff is, is truly safe uh, and worth it. It sounds like HEPA and UV is tried and true, but. Yeah, those, those are, you know, and I'm, I'm not trying to discourage someone from trying something if they have really gotten uh, a good read on it. PCO has really been studied quite a bit. I have a colleague uh, at Penn State who came from a manufacturer, big manufacturer that invested a lot in developing PCO technology. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that that works, that that's not putting something into the air that goes out into space. What you're getting is a catalytic uh, uh, reaction on, on a titanium dioxide catalyst that creates hydroxyl radicals and decomposes not just uh, microorganisms, but chemicals. So the problem with that for those who are chemically savvy was the, the kind of the pollution of the catalyst and, and maintaining performance over a long period of time. You know, that's, that's a, uh, that seems to be one of the main problems with, with that technology. There are other things out there and I think uh, there are going to be a lot of developments in air cleaners in, in the, the future because ventilation is expensive and these other technologies are coming. So that's something that I think you may be uh, purchasing eventually. Yeah, and then um, yeah, it was a question from Chris George here. Do you have thoughts on uh, 2.2 nanometers versus 254 nanometer UVC for germicidal effect? And do you have any worry about ozone production at 222? Um, yeah, 222. It's, it's like the, uh, anything under 240, I guess, potentially can produce some, uh, some ozone. 254, the uh, produced by mercury vapor lamps doesn't, but mercury vapor lamps produce a 185 line. And uh, the way that's dealt with is by using doped uh, titanium doped quartz tubes that filter it all out. Uh, that's another developing technology. The, the 222, the far UV, uh, if it works, it, it'll be great because it doesn't cause skin and eye irritation, at least according to some studies. The problem is that the, the sources they're using, again, are pure. Maybe an LED could produce a pure 222 line, but the, the eczema lamps that they're using to produce that produce longer wavelengths that can cause skin and eye irritation. So the, the results in the literature have been mixed. It's emerging. Most of the, the new technologies that use light, that's what they're trying to do is to produce a product that can be actually used uh, 
continuously in the space. They're looking at long waves too, at, at uh, you know, three, 385, even 404. Uh, but those aren't very germicidal, so it takes a lot of power or a long time for them to work. Can I ask a quick question? Uh, Tracy, you know, like, like Blake said, you can see he's in a room that's probably, what are your lanes? Probably close to 10 by 10, something like that. Maybe a little bit less than that, maybe eight by eight. Let's say you've got, you know, 10 of these rooms and you, you've done the other things, the upper room system, you've, you're, you're maximizing things. Do you think it would be helpful to have a, a single HEPA filter in each of these smaller rooms? considering all of the variables that we've talked about. I, and I know it's depending on the currents you're generating. And, and if you were going to do that, where would you want to put it in the room? Is there a specific spot that's better than another place? Yeah, so there's, there's not any um, real great studies that I'm aware of that, that quantify that. So what I'm gonna tell you is more based on just my, my intuition and, and having looked at flow dynamic studies and things like that. I, I think if you're putting that um, just on the floor next to where somebody is going to be sitting, you're going to you're going to recirculate a decent amount of air through that and reduce the overall contaminant load in the room. You're not going to do a lot to control specific air patterns. Um, certainly, if you had it located at the entrance to the room, further away from where the doctor and the patient are going to be sitting, it's going to be less effective at taking care of that. But so closer to them is better. One disadvantage of those units is that um, with some of them, they can be rather loud. And um, I've seen, I've had, I've heard issues of like in an airborne infection isolation room at a hospital. If you, if you can't get the full 12 air changes per hour in that space, you can use a HEPA recirculating unit to get you partway there. And they've had patients get up and turn them off. And they've had to build enclosures around them so that they can't touch the knobs and turn them out. You know, and, and we all know that acoustics is important. You're trying to hear clear speech. Um, I guess you could argue that maybe it'll help you with your HIPAA privacy or something, you know, to have a little white noise machine going on. But I think just locating it right there in the room nearby, um, if you get one that's not too noisy and irritating, it's fine. And, and you know, some of it is, is a perception as well, but if, if people are seeing it, they're going to feel confident in that or you know, give them some, some level of comfort. But you could also turn the unit on right during an, or off during an exam if you want to have better speech um, intelligibility going on and then turn it back on when the room is, is not occupied or when you're not actually conducting the exam, you know, if the noise is a problem. But I think just locating it nearby where, where the people are going to be sitting, you want to capture that contaminant as close to the source as you can and filter it out and, and capture that. Um, you know, people designing new facilities, there's another kind of ventilation strategy that we haven't talked about yet just to touch on. It's called displacement ventilation. And it involves putting the supplier out at a lower elevation low in the room. And usually then the temperature has to be a little bit warmer, even when you're in cooling mode, uh, overhead air distribution for cooling is often around 53 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, if you blow that cold of air out down low by somebody's legs, it's gonna be pretty uncomfortable. So those temperatures are usually warmer, you know, over, over 60 degrees, 65 or so. But if you supply that air down low, 
And then Bill mentioned that that heat that comes off of a person, it creates a thermal plume. Um, same thing happens in a surgery. You get you get some degree of thermal plume off people, but but um, that air comes next to a person, it warms, it's picking up the heat from the room, and then that heat rises, and it tends to draw contaminants out of um, person's breathing zone and up high, and then you return air grill up high in the ceiling, and so you get a um, nice flow pattern from low to high where you're you're keeping those contaminants from going out or getting mixed around in a room, and there have been some some studies that have been done, some research papers published in the ASHRAE journal, which is peer-reviewed with computational fluid dynamics to look at displacement ventilation in patient rooms and, and healthcare facilities and, and other areas. And um, it it's, can be quite successful. It's very case-dependent on the geometry of the space. You know, they look, for example, in the patient rooms, is the, is the bathroom near the window and the exterior of the place is the bathroom near the, the corridor and the hallway entrance and because um, that's where you've got exhaust that's going to go under the door in the bathroom and should you have an opening high up in the wall in the bathroom for instead of down low you know and adjust the door a door sweep or something in a space so but there are studies that that show that displacement ventilation can help not only with the um, contamination and trying to maintain a clean to less clean airflow but also with a nice even thermal comfort where you don't have the stratification in spaces because that can can make people uncomfortable. Well, that is uh, that's that's a really awesome. It's also it sounds like a poor man's negative pressure uh, ventilation system where you're sort of directing the air uh, in the way that you want it to go. Um, I, I want to remind everyone who is um, tuning in right now and also listening on the podcast. Um, if you have more questions, go to ashray.org. It's a s h r a e dot o r g. They have the most amazing website full of peer-reviewed literature and really great resources um, with folks like Bill and Tracy, uh, where they've basically curated um, uh, opinion papers that are really impactful. Uh, as we wrap up here, uh, Bill, any final word on um, strategies that people should be thinking of or any final thoughts you'd like to give us? Well, I, everyone uh, obviously has financial limitations. I think that my, my advice would be to start with the things that we know work that don't cost much money. I think adjusting your, your ventilation, your airflows may not cost any more than maybe a technician's time. And filter upgrades, actually, if they can be done without having to modify the system, are, uh, are pretty inexpensive, too. I think I was told yesterday it would take $50,000 to convert the whole Penn State campus to MERV 13 filters which is we've got 45,000 undergraduates. Um, and then these other things, uh, if you really want uh, more security, uh, ultraviolet uh, is a good thing to add and it will provide benefits even when we're not having a, a pandemic. And I should say that about the filters too. There's a great reason to put in MERV 13 or 14 filters. Uh, four, four million people a year die from uh, PM 2.5 exposure that it's all excess mortality. So some of these things you can do will improve your air quality permanently. So I think that's probably my, my summary. Excellent. Blake, any final thoughts as we wrap up? You know, just one, one last final thought, a question that came in and maybe Tracy could answer it. Um, you know, uh, now that we've heard this and we want to, you know, make sure we're hot rodding our airflow and upgrading our filters, can we just call any HVAC company to do that? What if we're new to a place and we don't, we don't have a, an HVAC company we've worked with for years and trust. Tracy, is there a way to, 
you know, to get a good recommendation on the HVAC uh, company that you could, that we could research locally to come in and help us with that? Yeah, you bet. There's, there's some things you can do. So ASHRAE does have some certifications. So for example, I have a healthcare facility design professional certification, HFDP, and you can go to the ASHRAE webpage and look under their certifications and you can look up by state, it doesn't go by city, but you can look up by state in the United States where there are engineers who have those certifications. And then you could probably find, research them on the internet and figure out where they're at and contact them. Um, you can also just look at different, um, if you look at consulting mechanical engineer online, you could probably find some, some firms and then you might just ask them, well, what is their experience? Um, what kinds of projects do they do? A lot of healthcare type facilities, or are they doing some institutional type research? And um, some of the salespeople do have good opinions about who the good engineers are. I like to talk to the reps that sell air handling units. They know who the good engineers are in town because they, they get the drawings and they bid that work and then they see that work installed. And if the engineers aren't doing a great job, their drawings aren't good, there's problems during construction, uh, those, those HVAC manufacturers representatives could tell you about that. So that might be a good place to start for, for a recommendation. Um, that's, a, that's a great tip. That's a great tip. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I, that we're kind of ending, ending right here on time. So, you know, uh, again, just want to thank you both so much for, for coming on and, and teaching us. There, there's going to be a lot of different eye doctors around the country and world that are going to benefit from this. So thank you both. And uh, what an excellent show. Gary? Yeah. Thanks, you all. This has been wonderful. You are uh, making an impact. And we sincerely appreciate your expertise and time. So everyone, until next time, this has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Brynmar Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Brynmar Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.